And welcome to Richard Gage, 9-11 Unleashed. I'm here with my wonderful wife and assistant, Gail. Hello, Gail. Hey, Richard. Hello. Hello. Uh, this is awesome to be back with you. We have an incredible guest tonight. Yeah. Tony Schaefer, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer, U.S. Army, retired. Boy, has he got some important information for us tonight. We're very excited to have him on the podcast. But first, Gail, what have you got to share in yes. the way of what's coming up? I'm going to keep it short because we have such a special guest today. We want to oh. give him plenty of time and not take it all up with announcements. So, yes, last week, in case you missed it, we had John Perkins. He is the author of the updated Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And next podcast that we have next Sunday is going to be Michael Springman. He worked in the consulate's office in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. He was constantly overridden by the over ridden by the CIA in his efforts to keep shady characters from entering the U.S. from all parts of the world through Saudi Arabia. He has quite the story to tell us. That's going to be an exciting one, too. Indeed. Yeah. And that's it? Well, we're just giving little little uh, <laughs> hints about our bookstore, or our, our store, rather, the Richard Gage 911 store. We keep mentioning it. And you can go to the website and see it now if you want to do a little sneak peek. Um, there's going to be a lot more coming, though, so don't think that's it. We got some surprises oh. coming for this store, actually. That's right. It's going to be pretty, pretty cool. Um, well, today we're speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer, U.S. Army retired, about his role in the U.S. Army data mining project Able Danger, which uncovered two Al-Qaeda terrorist cells that were already being infiltrated, or were they being recruited, by the CIA. We'll get to the bottom of what really happened with Tony and what he thinks about the 22-page bombshell sworn testimony of Guantanamo defense investigator Don Canestrero, which points indelibly to CIA complicity, at least in actively shielding two would-be hijackers and their Saudi intelligence handler from the FBI's awareness and spying on the FBI, in fact but infiltrating the hijackers and potentially exposing much greater involvement in 9-11. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> Was the CIA actually infiltrating the hijackers? And it's all coming to light, and it could be a lot worse than just that. Tony Schaefer worked with Canestrero for 10 years, so we're getting lots of insight here tonight. Why would the CIA withhold key intel from the FBI, as well as block the FBI agents installed in the Alec Station facility in Langley, Virginia, from informing their superiors about Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar in the U.S. immediately following their participation in an Indonesia-Al-Qaeda meeting, which was secretly videotaped. All of that, unless the CIA was more complicit than we've been led to imagine in 9-11. What possible reason could the Bush administration have had to order the total destruction of all 2.5 terabytes of data from Colonel Schaefer's multi-year investigation of al-Qaeda via the remarkably successful U.S. Army Able Danger Project, unless they were also complicit, the Bush administration? Do these actions collectively show that 9-11 was an inside operation 
from beginning to end. Well, we'll also ask, what does Colonel Schaefer think about the explosive demolition of the three World Trade Center skyscrapers on 9-11? We ask because this evidence itself demonstrates unequivocally that 9-11 was indeed planned months or even years in advance by those who had access to the three to three of the most highly secure buildings outside the Pentagon? Or was it Saudi hijackers who failed Cessna Flying School who are responsible for the controlled demolitions? Let's see what Tony thinks. Our guest on Richard Gage 9-11 Unleashed tonight is the president of the London Center for Policy Research, a New York Times bestselling author and CIA-trained intelligence operations officer with 35 years of experience in global and national security. He's also an advisor to senior members of the White House, the intelligence community, Pentagon, and key members of Congress. As a senior DOD intelligence officer, Anthony Schaefer received the Bronze Star and the the Commander's Award for civil service during his work on cutting-edge, highly classified DOD special activities. He was detailed operational and he has detailed operational and policy expertise regarding the full spectrum of strategic national security issues, from being a pioneer in cyber operations to being at cutting edge of U.S. counterterrorism efforts and helping develop the use of weaponized technology. Tony has, Tony has commanded and directed several key operational intelligence organizations that conducted compartmented black operations. In addition, he commanded Field Operating Base Alpha, a joint DIA-CIA unit conducting classified collection and special operations supporting support regarding terrorists just after the 9-11 attacks. He was brought to active duty by the Army for the first Gulf War in 1991. I didn't know that. And transitioned into the Army's Military Intelligence Accepted Career program, where he became the chief of Army's global-controlled H-U-M-I-N-T collection program and ran specific special access program operations. In 1995, Tony transitioned to Defense Intelligence Agency as part of the consolidation of all service, Army, Navy, Air Force, and the U.S. Marine Corps. Into the Department of Defense, he became a senior intelligence officer and created Task Force Stratus Ivy that conducted the full spectrum of support to, to Department of Defense Special Operations Command and other non-DOD agencies. This included support to the controversial counterterrorism project known as Able Danger, a pre-9-11 offensive operation suite designed to detect, degrade, and counter Al-Qaeda capabilities. That's what we're going to focus on today, but Get this, in 2001, just after the 9-11 attacks, Tony was returned to active duty for a 30-month period, during which he commanded a DIA special mission operation operating base called OB Alpha and had two successful combat tours to Afghanistan. I didn't know that either. During his two successful undercover combat tours, he undercover... <laughs> We got to ask him about that. He in Afghanistan, he participated in the search for senior Al Qaeda leadership in Afghanistan. His New York Times and international best-selling memoir, Operation Darkheart: Spycraft and Special Ops on the Front Lines of Afghanistan, and the Path to Victory, 
provides an unprecedented look at intelligence operations during a period in the Afghanistan war in 2003, where a small number of operators were able to effectively control this large country. Tony's a frequent guest on national electronic media, TV and radio, and is frequently quoted in, in, print, in print media as an analyst regarding defense and national security issues. And he's a trusted advisor to many members of Cong Congress. It's my great pleasure and honor to bring to you Mr. Tony Schaefer, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer of U.S. Army, retired. It is an honor to have you on our show. Richard, sure thanks for having. Oh, thank you, thank you, Jake. Yeah, it's good to be here. And I, I sometimes I feel old from just hearing all that stuff. I, I know. Jeez, I could hardly get through it. But you know what? I edited that down. Believe it oh, or not, <laughs> it's about half the size. I got it, and uh, it was hard to leave out uh, some such very important history there that uh, you've provided us to provided oh, to us, Tony. Richard, yeah. look, I, I get thanked all the time for my service, and I, I, I say, no, thank you. Uh, you paid for it. It was great. And I go back and do <laughs> it again. No, I, I uh, a lot of people don't know this. I started off in high school actually kind of doing interesting things. I, I went to high school in Lisbon, Portugal, and I'm proud of the fact that I've worked with for every every administration, for every president except this one, except for Bush, for Biden. I yeah. actually was uh, detailed to President Clinton's, uh, no, sorry, President Carter's staff, uh, when I was working at the American Embassy during summer hire in uh, 19, my goodness, 1979. I actually, I actually have a plaque over my wall from when I let a, a certificate of appreciation from President uh, Carter. So I've, I've, uh, I've had a interesting uh, career working with every administration except except this one in some form. So, well, you're not missing much <laughs> from what <laughs> I hear. Oh my gosh! While we. Um, uh, before we jump into it, let's have Gail let our viewers know how they can ask you questions, because I know they're going to have a ton of them. <laughs> yes. So, okay. On the platform that you're watching this from, go to the comment section. A lot of times it's usually below the video or to the side. And just type in your questions there, comments, questions. And I just ask that you really double check it because I'm going to be copying it onto the screen. It's going to be at the bottom of the screen on the banner. So double check, just make sure that what you wrote makes sense and that it's what you actually want to say. And on some of the platforms, I believe YouTube, you're only allowed a certain amount of um, text and then it stops you and then you end up having to do another one. So try to keep them short so we don't have a message that's split up. And other than that, it's just, you know, keep it, keep your comments and questions full of love so I don't have to block you. Oh, yeah. She'll That's do it, it too. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, thank you, Gail. And we'll let you go, uh, lovely one, um, oh, and do the you. work that you do best. Okay. And we'll see you soon. Bye. <laughs> and wait, let's, What? we know how to do this. You're going to have to learn it. You did learn. There she goes. <laughs> All right. Um, Tony, thank you for having the courage to be on this show because we have some tough questions for That's you. That's okay. Well, I'll, I'll do the best I can. So, <laughs> All right, my friend. This isn't like Jeopardy where I have to actually go to categories, is it? So, uh, I have a few categories oh, okay. here for you. Don't worry. But uh, <laughs> let's start with the easy one. Where were you on 9-11 and how did you first learn of the 9-11 uh, attacks? What were your thoughts so, um, yeah, it's, it's, I was actually at Clarendon, Virginia, uh, right down the street from the Pentagon. 
And Clarendon was, at the time, it's no longer that now, the Defense Intelligence Agency had a, a large uh, uh, operation there. It was mostly undercover. People didn't acknowledge it was a DI facility. It was the headquarters for my unit for Stratus Ivy, which was my uh, my task force that I was running a, a um, number of, of uh, basically uh, information operations would be the loose category that we all fit within. Everything from cyber op- cyber operations where we're actually monitoring uh, things to protect the defense inf- information system back uh, backbone, mm-hmm. uh, trying to get in chat rooms. We were running the first undercover cyber cyber operations for DOD to include, uh, I guess the euphemism is uh, weaponized technology. You talked about that in the uh, my bio, where we're looking at how we could adapt. Uh, technology for purposes of supporting military operations, combat operations at the strategic level. And then also uh, we were doing support to to able danger, which we're going to be talking about tonight. I was actually in uniform. I was actually uh, going to be going over to the Pentagon to meet with Bob Winchester. Bob was the uh, army representative to Congress that represented uh, military intelligence. He was basically the representative. I know it's Everybody has lobbyists to include the army. So Bob Winchester was was the army's lobbyist for MI, and I was uh, actually in. I was a major then. I was actually in uniform, and I'd shown up to my office, getting ready to go over to the Pentagon from to Clarendon to, to the Pentagon from Clarendon, and um, the meeting was scheduled, I think, for like nine a.m. And I was getting prepared, and all of a sudden we started seeing all. No, it was, it was scheduled for I think nine thirty or ten, because it wasn't it wasn't at nine anyway. Um, I was in my office. And all of a sudden, one of my uh, my staff comes to me and says, hey, you need to look at this. There's something going on in New York. And they had we had a, uh, all government spaces have TVs in them, Richard. I don't know if you know that, but they all have TVs. And we're mm-hmm. they're sitting there on CNN. And all of a sudden, um, I walk up to the screen just in time to see the second tower get hit. Literally, I just walked up and then because it had been going on for a while and I've been busy getting prepared. And then so I kind of instantly knew that this was not good. And I instantly started thinking it was something to do with Al-Qaeda because we've been tracking Al-Qaeda. So I call mm-hmm. over, literally get on one of the secure phones. I call over to the Pentagon to one of the analysts who I've been working with, uh, Mark Garlasco. I don't, I don't think Mark would mind me mentioning his name. Mark, Mark and I are still friends. And I started chatting about, like, what are you seeing over there? What's going on? And literally within five minutes of that call, the Pentagon gets hit by the jet, the next jet. Wow. And so... Um, at that point in time, I knew it was bad and it wasn't going to get any better. It was total chaos. And so basically I told my team, and this was like just after the Pentagon got hit, I said, I don't care what you do. Get out of the building now. Go home. Get, get, just get away. Don't go to any government facility. Just leave. We're not going to do anything today. It's going to be chaos. Just get out of there. And I, I made the call to, to evacuate my phone before DI released everybody. It's like... I didn't, I, it didn't take me long to figure out that this wasn't going to get any better. And then I got basically got everybody out and we dispersed. And that's when we started calling amongst ourselves, trying to figure out what was going on. And that, uh, that, and by the way, Richard, I was scheduled to be uh, meeting with Bob uh, right before the 9-11 attack in his space, which was destroyed by the aircraft. Bob had called me uh, about, a, about an hour before the meeting and said, look, I'm, I'm stuck on the hill uh, at a breakfast we're going to have to postpone our meeting. Mm. So by Bob Winchester uh, wanting to have a big breakfast and hobnob with congressmen, 
uh, he and I both survived the attack by the fact that we were not in his space at the Army G-1. Is where one of the aircraft, uh, one of the the, the, the events happened. Uh, wow. People in his office were killed, as a matter of fact, and, and he and I oh were not. God. So I, I felt very fortunate that that was one meeting I, I, I did not have to make. Uh, and you but knew then, some of those folks too, right? I did. I knew a number of folks. As a matter of fact, uh, one of them that was killed was a DIA comptroller, one of the guys. And uh, it was ironic uh, by the fact that, you know, Able Danger was an operation designed to go out and offensively terminate Al-Qaeda. Uh, this guy was killed. This guy kept cutting my budget, cutting my operational money uh, from doing the operation. So ironically, uh, he was he, he died in the attack. So I've always found that gravely ironic that one of the guys who kept cutting my budget from letting me do my job ended up actually being killed in the attack. So it was grandly ironic and sad for him. Oh, God. So so the Defense uh, Intelligence Agency was one of the agencies that was hit in the explosion was. that was created there. It was, yes. Uh, A number of DI folks, I think it was about three or four, actually perished in the in the attack. And, and, then, and they the, were the agency tasked with looking for the... Um, the the uh, the money that uh, couldn't be found at the Pentagon. Well, there's a lot of shenanigans going on with money there, Richard. I'm not going to put any uh, <laughs> happy face on that. And the, the 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 money that that was you know the Don Rumsfeld issue and Don and I became friendly in the old in the days after all of this. I think he almost had a uh, McNamara moment. He was going in that direction, but huh. I think there were a number of things that were kind of happening during that time that were questionable. And I think we, there's a number of areas we go into tonight to include kind of what was going on behind the scenes. And it was a, you know, if you, if you read dark heart and you see, and it's much like if you ever watched 24, well, if you watch 24, Jack Bauer's problems are mo more with the bureaucracy and the treachery behind him than dealing with the bad guys. And I always found it to be very similar that you, you kind of generally know who the bad guys are. It's the ones behind you who pretend to be the good guys who you have to really watch out for. And I found that to be an interesting uh, dynamic well, since, to deal with. Yeah. yeah. And since it came up, um, uh, the Donald Rumsfeld had announced uh, uh, in his speech uh, that there's a war on waste and that they couldn't account for $2.3 trillion. And, it, do you find it curious that that was the area that was hit in the Pentagon, the, uh, those folks that were doing well, that accounting? I don't believe in uh, conspiracies necessarily, but I don't believe in coincidence either. So uh, the the truth is, I think it's one of those areas where the Pentagon has yet, Richard, and I've been, I've been, I was, I'm part of a group called the Pentagon Budget Campaign. I've been for decade, for over a decade now. And one of the things that that group calls for, and I support fully, is auditing the Pentagon. And look, you or me, if we can't audit our own books and account for everything, we get in trouble, right? I mean, it's just the way things work. Yet uh, we have the largest bureaucracy within uh, within the country unable to balance its books or account for how it spends its money. To me, that's unconscionable. Uh, I don't know how uh, we, the American people or members of Congress, who I do advise, uh, I, I say, look, you know, you need to hold the Pentagon to account for whatever it spends, because there's huge waste, and, uh, fraud, and abuse in the Pentagon, and uh, some of the stuff we'll talk about tonight, I believe one of the reasons they covered up the evil, danger stuff was partially because the government bought the same data three different times, and they didn't want to admit that. They didn't want to admit that we got information from mosques. That was another like, oh my gosh, we don't want to let people know that we we're actually having paid researchers go out and 
and figure out who was showing up at mosques. Uh, that was mm-hmm. there's several things which were administrative and bureaucratically inconvenient, and I think resulted in uh, in a lot of the problems we faced regarding both before and after the the 9/11 attacks. Mm. Let's go back to Abel Danger uh, and on 9/11 because you you had been investigating Al Qaeda for 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 years uh, in, until a certain time, uh, uh, but on 9/11 uh, we'll talk about that time. But sure. on 9/11, did you um, you you mentioned that you you thought almost immediately of Al Qaeda? What, what, what tell us about that thinking process? So. Um, well, let me give some history on Abel Danger, and that may help the audience understand why I thought instantly about Al Qaeda. In um, in 1999, uh, it's, it's it's kind of hard to explain. As a military case officer, we are both civilians and we're military, and I know it's hard to, for people to understand. It's like, well, how can you be both? Well, we are, because we are technically in most status a like a GS employee. I, I am now a GS 14 retired because I retired. At the same time, Richard, because we're in, in DOD, they expect us to be members of the reserve so we can put the uniform on and go do things. So uh, as a reservist, I had to go down and I was uh, I would go down and do my tours with Special Operations Command with the human support element. And that included both at Fort Bragg with uh, JSOC, as well as headquarters Special Operations Command in Tampa. And also I worked at one point counter drug. I was the senior human intelligence advisor to the uh, the intelligence officer at Jadif East in Key West to encounter drugs. So as a reservist, I would always do something to get my reserve time in. We had to do two weeks a year and so much other time to maintain that status. And so uh, in 1999, my tour of reserve du- duty was down in Tampa and uh, at Special Operations Command Headquarters. And I was assigned to the uh, the human support element there. And I know this is people have a hard time believing this, but it's completely true Uh, because of what I did in my civilian role. uh, I was asked to brief the the commanding officer of Special Operations Command, one Peter Schoomaker, Pete Schoomaker, the commanding the 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 commander of SOCOM, the four star. And everybody kind of says it's like it happens because I'm working at the strategic level. And so during uh, my reserve tour down there, Richard. I get called in to brief uh, General Schoomaker on Stratus Ivy on my unit. And as I'm going through and briefing him and all these things uh, that, uh, that are at the top secret or above level, I mean, this was a very high level briefing. Uh, General Schoomaker looks over at one of the colonels and said, get Schaefer read in to able danger. And I'm just sitting there like, uh, okay. He says, I want it done by tomorrow. I want Schaefer to work this. And so I had no idea what that was like. Uh, okay. And this was like August, July or August of 1999. So then very next day, Captain or then Commander Scott Philpot, who's a, a, a member of the Able Danger team, takes me within a secure room, within a secure room, within a secure room. Oh and he opens up, opens up this big binder and he says, here, read this. And it's like, holy cow. This was the the secret war plan to go pursue Able uh, Al-Qaeda offensively. It's like, Go get them. It was like, I can't go into all the details. It's 26 pages, still highly classified. But it basically laid out the idea that uh, Al-Qaeda become an existential threat that was worth uh, focusing on. And we had we were being put together as an entrepreneurial uh, investment by Special Operations Command uh, under an order signed by Hugh Shelton, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, to begin pursuit 
offensive operational uh, activity to plan for, not not to go execute, Richard. There's a difference between planning and execution, but we were designed to plan to to on call, deny, degrade, or destroy Al Qaeda based on uh, direction from the president, which back then was President Clinton. And so that was the beginning of my role in Able Danger. And again, but did I the CIA know about this uh, effort at this time? As a matter of fact, yes, CIA did because they asked me to go in and, and brief uh, Dave Rolf. Dave Rolf was the uh, CIA. Dave was a good guy, and if, if you know, if Dave's watching this eventually. Dave, Dave was a good guy. Dave was a former Army guy, and uh, so we knew at the time. And you, you mentioned Alex Station. I think either we talked about it an hour before Alex Station. Yeah was the CI competitive element. So CI was doing their their stuff. We were doing our stuff. So both elements, I think, were aware of each other, but we did not commingle. Uh, it was, uh, uh, this is a bit of legal jargon I'll use, but Able Danger was not a traditional intelligence collection operation. I know, I know you mentioned data mining. Data mining wasn't the focus. Data mining was simply that which was required to do global targeting because there was no way to, to target a non-geographic uh, uh, thing because it had never been done before. So data mining was the the um, the intelligence predicate that we used, the technique to use to, to map al-Qaeda globally. And that's why you see all the charts and everything show up. Uh, but there was a difference. So I sat down and I briefed, uh, I, I learned the operation, got fully read into it. And the SOCOM guy said, well, hey, you know, you're trained by CIA. You know, Dave, can you go talk to him about what we're doing to see if we can cooperate? Huh. So I went in and I sat down with Dave Rolf and I explained everything I, I, th that we just talked about. I explained to him and I said, look, Dave, what we're trying to do is not get in your way and not compete. You guys have a finding to go kill to go kill Bin Laden. That's fine. Go do that. That's not us. We want to map the body. You want the head. We want the body. We want to be able to track everything else going on globally outside of the leadership. And so at the end of the briefing, uh, Dave said, look, I, Tony, I don't see any conflict here. It seems like, you know, our missions are, are compatible. Uh, and I said, well, do you think we can cooperate? He said, Tony, unless General Schoolmaker himself calls George Tenet, there'll be no cooperation. CI will never cooperate because the moment you guys become successful, they're going to feel that you're stealing their thunder. So they will never cooperate. So I can tell you there was no cooperation between CI and DOD on this at all. Zero. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, just, I'm just telling you how it was. And I remember that meeting like it was yesterday with Dave. And I, I again, I'm not holding anything against Dave. It was not Dave's fault that the two agencies, DOD and CI have such a, a rigorous Disregard. I mean, by the way, I don't know if you knew this. We we actually in DOD call uh, members of of uh, CIA Klingons. If if you remember the Star <laughs> Trek universe, we consider them the Klingons. Just saying, you know, oh in a great great, in a very loving way. But yes, they are they are the Klingons to us. So just yeah. saying, in, in a loving way, right? Yes. All right. Well, let's get into the the these uh, future hijackers. Uh, which of the yeah. individual? Uh, 19, uh, did you identify and track before 9-11? Well, and, and, that's and name the, the difference so. between there's, you say, you say you were tracking two cells right. in the U S but there were actually four altogether, right? One for each team for the, the I think there plan. was four, there's three disclosed, but I think there was another that may have been not disclosed. So I, I, I think that's debatable. So let me explain how we were tracking them. And we didn't identify them as cells because that was not known to us. We, you know, we, in, uh, on hindsight now, understand the groupings. We didn't at the time. So what we did 
Richard, to make it very simple for the audience. Uh, data mining, as I mentioned, was the preferred targeting method um, that had never been done before. We had a number of fits and starts trying to figure out how do you map a non-geographic target? Well, we figured out data was a way to do it. Army, Land Information Warfare Activity, LIWA, the Information Dominant Center at Fort Belvoir. Uh, by the way, speaking of Star Trek, their, their, the, the, their thing is set up as the bridge of the Enterprise, and I'm not kidding. The guy who designed uh, the Enterprise D bridge for Star Trek The Next Generation designed the, the command console. Uh, oh, for, stop. I'm not. No, Google it. You can Google it. It's, it's uh, Information <laughs> Dominant Center. The, the, the pictures are online. I am not joking. And they actually had these big swishing doors that had like Klingon symbol, symbols on it. It was great. It was a lot of taxpayer money went in to make that place look really cool. Just saying. And, um, you know, Waste, Fraud, and Bruce, like I said, you know, the, that's, where, that's where that money went, you know, to this, the bridge of the in, Enterprise in, in uh, B2 of the Nolan Building at Fort Belvoir. Anyway, we're going through and we're, we're looking for methodologies to, to map Al-Qaeda. And that's the objective here is to figure out what the body Al-Qaeda looks like. And so what we did is did, we took the 93 World Trade Center bombers and basically we took and digitized their profile. Each one of the, the individuals who were involved in that, they basically made a digital model of them, uh, an algorithm. And then with that, with that algorithmic mod model, we had done three terabytes of collection. We had collected everything from Lloyd's of London to uh, basic open source information. We had spiders on the internet going out doing collection. I mentioned we had uh, researchers in mosques looking at individuals visiting mosques, which was something didn't like talking about, but we did. And then you took this, this, this data, this huge data, and you took the algorithm and said, hey, algorithm, out of all these people that that's in this three terabytes, who looks like these guys? Who fits the, the these the profile of these guys who were involved in the in the trade center? That's it. That was that's how we mapped it. And so, actually, out of that data run, and this is I'm I'm compiling what took eight months to do into about a a five minute conversation. Anyway, this was it's well, you know what 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 we did then over eight months can be done literally in minutes now. I mean, it's just the computing power, the ability of things to go out and pull data in. This at the time was literally like, uh, you know, st stones and sticks because that was the era. This is like, like it's 1999. Mm. And, and when they, they built the database, Richard, then we had to send the algorithms into it to look at it. And that's how the, and by the way, uh, Judicial Watch is, is uh, basically foia the database I'm talking about, this unclassified database, it's unclassified. Mm. Uh, so D Judicial Watch has, has actually FOIA'd this. And uh, Richard, did you, did you know that SOCOM actually responded to their FOIA request? Positively. Oh, they said, hey, they uh, 10 years later, they said, we're still working on it. They actually responded <laughs> last year. It's like, yeah, we haven't forgot. We're still working on it. It's like, oh my God. I'm not joking. I'm, Chris Farrell and I did a thing on Lou Dobbs' show and talked about this. It's like, really? I mean, come on. I know what's in it. Anyway, now, so, what did uh, what did Abel Danger find in the way of actual would be hijackers? So so, so then after these clusters started coming up, we started combining the uh, the unclassified data with classified data. Basically, you would take the unclassified stuff and put it into databases with the, the you know, the secret stuff and figure out where the patterns were emerging regarding activity and that the the activity started to materialize in a place called uh, Yemen. 
as a, as a, as a matter of fact, as part of uh, what uh, what happened right before the attack of the coal uh, in October of uh, of 1999, we actually had de- detected that one of the hotspots was Yemen, and one of the big uh, unanswered questions was why the, the central command representative didn't pass that information that we'd come up with to uh, to the folks at the coal. And, and Kurt Lippold, Captain L- Kurt, uh, Commander Lippold, and I are friends, and. That's something we've asked questions about as well. It's like, why didn't why didn't that information get passed? But anyway, that's a separate issue we could probably talk about another time. But suffice it to say that out of these the, the data runs, we we came up with clusters of interest. And Richard, it was those clusters of interest and their relationship to Al Qaeda leadership is what drove the planning process next, because some of this had to do with proximity, capability, and potentiality. Basically, you had to figure out which had the most basically deadly potentiality to the United States and which which ones were the the ones that were most likely to do damage to to targets. And that's why when we we did the run, we discovered that some of these guys were in the United States. And uh, those are, I think, uh, Mandar and and Al-Hasimi. I I get the names wrong. Al-Hasmi. Al-Hasmi. And Al-Midar. Yeah. And then and then uh, a guy named uh, Atta, Mohammed Atta. And so it was those guys that came up. And what was significant is when we were doing this run, one of the, the distinguishing factors was where are these guys at? Because, again, it wasn't simply about linking them, which we did. One of the validation points was you had to make a direct contact between one of the guys who met the profile from the 93 hijacking. You had to make the, the and identify them as meeting the criteria of that profile and then linking them to Al-Qaeda leadership directly. There had to be a direct link. And then after we made that link, then it's like, OK, where are these guys at? And that's where the controversy really started, because we had to go to the lawyers when we discovered some of these guys were here in the United States. And mm-hmm. so this one of the things I testified to both in open and closed hearings, Richard, was the fact that uh, the lawyers came in. And basically, any individual who we had discovered who met the criteria of being essentially a terrorist based on the 93 bombing, if they were here legally, the lawyers said, we can't look at them. They are they are to be treated as a U.S. person. Now, we could get into all sorts of legal discussions here. Anyway, there's a very limited, in my judgment, range of people who are U.S. persons. You're a U.S. person. I'm a U.S. person. People with uh, certain... Uh, protections who are here legally are a U.S. person. People who are here on a visa are not a U.S. person. But uh-huh. the lawyers insisted that we treat them as off limits. And this now, is now, who, who do these lawyers work for? They work for DOD. Uh, okay. In fact, it was a Navy lawyer in particular who did the this this um, redaction, if you will, of the of the individuals. And he came in and put stickies over the faces of the people that the lawyer said we couldn't look at. And this is one of the great mysteries because it was those people who were here that they put the, to include Muhammad Atta. And well, this so, would be the opportunity for you to call up the FBI and well, turn this so, over to them, right? So remember, Richard, this wasn't the only black operation I was running. This was but one of a number. And so um, I'm, I'm in command of my unit. And so I start getting inklings from those working this. Remember, I'm, I'm the guy... As a reservist, I go down and, and work with these guys, but then I'm in charge of my task force, this larger Stratus Ivy thing. And so I'm not there full time. 
Able Danger is one of the constellation of things I'm supporting. So the guys working the operation, Scott calls me and says, there's something wrong. Uh, our lawyers aren't letting us work targets, which we think are pretty important to focus on. He explains what's going on regarding the stickies and everything else. He says, you need to come down. So I get on a plane. I come down from Washington, from Clarendon down to Tampa, and he explains what's going on. And we start fighting the lawyers over this. We literally have a, a number of battles saying, these aren't U.S. These aren't U.S. persons. EO twelve triple three governs what a U.S. person is and is not. And if a U.S. even if a U.S. person, Richard, is identified as having direct links with a terrorist organization or a foreign counter a, a, a enemy a foreign counter an enemy foreign counter a, a <laughs> enemy intelligence organization like Chinese intelligence, you can still target the U.S. citizen, but you have mm-hmm. to make the connection. So we're saying. If even if you treat them as U.S. citizens, they've got links to Al Qaeda leadership. You can't you can't stop us from looking at them. And it was a huge battle. And what it came down to is they felt the Jamie Gorelick memo. There's a name for you. Uh, yeah. Overruled what we were doing is that no 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 you you guys cannot look at this. Uh, these things have to be dis- discarded. And then we said we want to take it to the FBI and said no you can't take it to the FBI because of the Jamie Gorelick memo. You can't share it. So this became another battle. So behind the scenes, because I was actually working a separate operation with the FBI in Washington, one of my other uh, work uh, operational support roles was helping the FBI uh, target seven, the terrorist organization 17 November in Athens. If you recall, uh, 17 November had killed a number of Western diplomats to include a Navy captain, uh, a naval attache. So we, DIA, my unit came in to support the FBI. FBI was just starting what they called extraterritorial operations. I was actually detailed at one point to, to Washington field office and sent over to Athens to work this. So it was through that WFO contact, I kept trying to set up a meeting with Special Operations Command and WFO, with, with FBI WFO. And uh, it was that contact that was literally shut down by the lawyers every single time. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, it was acknowledged during closed hearings. And I think, I don't know about open, but I know closed hearings. It was acknowledged that that uh, the, the DIA IG found one of the memos where the meeting between Able Danger and FBI was on the agenda for, for, for I think it was early 2000, but it was shut down by lawyers. So every time, Richard, we tried to pass this, lawyers tried to get in the way of it. And as I mentioned, Jamie Gorelick started off as a lawyer at the Pentagon. She started off doing all these wacky things behind the scenes. And for whatever reason, we could not legitimately pass the information. Now, I got the question, why didn't you just break the rules? You break rules all the time, which I do. But why didn't you do it on this? Well, I didn't know how important it was because, yeah, it was important. But we did not have foreknowledge that that they were planning to attack that quickly. So all we were doing, again, and I tried to explain this to a number of investigators, like, look, I'm doing uh, eight different operations. Each of them are uh, uh, under themselves a super secret, uh, uh, incredible operation. And uh, I I only have so much time. My my little unit of, of 15 people doing global operations, although it's fun and cut, cutting edge, and we're the ones they go to when they, they don't want. It's like the, I remember the uh, old uh, uh, series, Richard, uh, Mission Impossible, the Impossible yeah. Missions Force. Well, my guys were like that. And it's like we were always taking on stuff that we were fearless on. But you only got so much bandwidth. So when you've got Iran, when you got North Korea, when you've got China, 
when you got when you got you got all these things are already working and then you got terrorism it's but one of five six really important things and so i did make the honest attempt to pass the information as a matter of fact louis free in um i think it was november of of 2005 wrote an editorial to the the wall street what wrote an, a wall street e- journal editorial where he basically said had he as a director of FBI, received the able danger information, he felt he could have stopped 9-11. That's, Louis Free said that. Wow. And, and people can Google that. It's still out there. Anyway, uh, he basically questioned why we, they, the FBI, were never permitted to get the able danger information. And that is still, to this day, a mystery. But, but you said fact, he got it. He said he got it. He said he didn't know. He didn't get it. That's what he I'm said saying. He, he didn't wrote, get it. Yeah, he said, he wrote an editorial saying he feels, Louis if Free. he got it feels that if he'd got the information, he could have stopped the 9-11 attacks. That's his words, not mine. And again, your audience can Google that. It's still out there. Wall Street Journal. I think it was November of 2000, 2005 that he wrote that. So, so uh, you you were able to track three of the hijackers, each, uh, well, in, in, in two different cells, Mohammed right. Atta and one. Exactly. Yes. Were you able to follow them uh, to the no. flight schools at all? No. That was not our job. Richard, remember, we were doing planning against a global target. We were not investigators. As a matter of fact, one of the things they don't like talking about is the fact that we, DOD, were contemplating doing operations on American soil. You can imagine the sensitivity of that. And so the fact is that we were looking at these things. We we didn't see a border. We just see it. We see Al-Qaeda globally. And so we're looking at how, how do we the Special Operations Command plan with all the resources and military capacity we have, how, how do we go about stopping Al-Qaeda if we have to? What do we have to do? And that is mm-hmm. that is a weapon and uh, capability challenge, not a legal one. Because legally, people would go nuts with the idea of Special Operations Command just with impunity doing operations against terror, terrorist targets here. Just saying. But uh, we were just saying these. this is the constellation of al-Qaeda. This is where they're at. And then we started looking at, at the planning options within what uh, General Schoonmaker called the ranch. Special Operations Command kind of looked at as a ranch, which had a lot of things, a lot of different units on it. Some of the units you know, some of the don't. But the idea was how do we match units with certain capabilities to be on call, ready to, to stop al-Qaeda? That, that was what we were doing. That was able danger. How did Jamie Gorlick justify uh, prohibiting your team from communicating the information you gathered over years, two terabytes of information to the FBI? Well, first way they did it was they ordered the data destroyed. So in um, the spring of 1999, I'm sorry, it was the spring. So yeah, yeah, spring of 99. They actually had directed that uh, the, the databases be destroyed. That basically Ooh. they take uh, the, the, the DOD General's Council. Basically, the premise was in this, this, these, this three terabytes of data, Richard, that we uh, destroy the data. That basically, because there was quote unquote US person information in it, despite the fact that it was gathered uh, unobtrusively by open internet means. Uh, basically, they took and all that took that data. I'm sorry, I got the date wrong. That was the um, the spring of 2000. 
the spring of 2000. So after this thing got rolling, rolled into the spring of 2000. And um, they, they basically, the lawyers ordered that the data be destroyed, that you've got to destroy it. Now, one of the things that came up in that was links between Susan Rice and the Chinese. So I think that was an inconvenient fact that just because we had collected so much data, as they started looking at the data, they found that certain key members of the administration, the Bush administration, were were linked. Remember, Bush administration rolls in in 2000. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, right before that. So that in 2000, they started looking at some of the links between some of the folks who were prominent within the the government and saying, oh, we can't have this. So Susan, Susan, uh, uh, what's her name was was linked to this. Yeah. And and so we were destroyed. We were ordered to destroy it. Now, Army didn't destroy it. There was a copy that was, I guess, hidden away. It it still remains, uh, by the way, to this day in Army holding. Army continues to hold on to it from what I'm told. But basically, uh, because it had U.S. person information in it, so then we had to go to do what we called Able Danger Two, which was down in in uh, in Texas, in Dallas, one of the suburbs down there. We actually had to reconstitute the entire database in the summer of 2000. Basically, we had to reconstitute and reorganize everything in um, in Texas and against so the they, DOD lawyers' uh, orders. Well, we. General Schoolmaker was very persistent. So a lot of us recognize, a lot of us don't be, Richard, a lot of us don't like being told no, just saying. I mean, trust me, I I, um, I got in a lot of trouble for, you know, I, just doing what I thought was most important. And so we, we as, a, as a group said, you know, we're not going to, we're not paying attention to you. We're going to go do our own thing. Plus the other thing, as I was trying to explain, we were doing this as a Title 10 operation. There's a, there's a distinction with a difference. Title 10 versus Title 50. Title 50 would invoke the intelligence collection uh, issues we just mentioned, if you know, all the issues regarding U.S. citizens and all that. So basically, at this point, we said, no, no, we're going to do this as a planning operation. Title 10 versus Title 50. Now, Title 50 is you're going to hear people talk about it. That's the, the body of laws which governs CIA and the intelligence community. Title 10 is called traditional military activities. And if you recall, Richard, when I testified, I didn't testify to any intelligence committee. I uh, testified to judiciary and to armed services. There was no intelligence testimony. The reason is because the decision was to make able danger a Title 10 operation. The easiest way to remember Title 10 as traditional military operations, TMA, or traditional military activities, TMA, is... Uh, the rule of thumb is whatever George Washington did when he was in charge of the Continental Army, the, the military can still do under Title X. That's that's the rule. So the oversight of Title X is completely different than Title 50, than intelligence operations. And this got into all still time. able to shut you down. Well, well, that, it, it, yes, we were able to get away from Title 50. But because I'm a, I was a Title 50 officer, an intelligence officer, but I was still DOD, we, we were kind of bifurcated. It's really, I mean, I do both. I mean, look, I'm, I'm trained by CIA to be an intelligence officer, but Richard, my job is to support military operations. That's why if you read Darkheart, that book, if you read Darkheart, I'm actually out with special operations guys doing, you know, special things. So uh, my my belief, I've, I side always 
on Title X. Just as just I'm just a Title X kind of guy because I think you've got to get things done. And so we were constantly, Richard, fighting behind the scenes with lawyers over this issue. And yeah, we we felt that Al Qaeda was a threat. And if they're a threat, we need to go something do something about it. And so this is another note I want to throw in here for your audience to understand. One of the other reasons that that the 9-11 Commission didn't know about us initially is because we were so small. We were completely, literally off the reservation, literally. And we wanted it that way because we wanted to be able to plan and be prepared to go after these guys without a lot of interference from lawyers because lawyers are not your friends. I mean, I'm just just saying, I have no offense to the lawyers listening. You know, lawyers tend to get in the way of things and and make it very difficult to get things done from my perspective, from my experience. Well, in retrospect, given the incredible data that you had mined and, and, and gathered and, and planned, uh, being shut down essentially by the Bush administration, uh, Cheney, uh, right? Uh, certainly uh, would well, have initially it was had a hand. No, it was a Clinton administration in 99, 2000. And then the Bushes rolling in January 2001. So you were shut that, down before the Bush, Bush yeah. came in? So that's the mystery. So that, let me fast forward to January of, of 2001. So in 2000, we reconstituted, as I just uh, described, Richard, down in Texas, down in Dallas. We put the, put the band back together and the team comes up with options. These options are essentially taking, we've taken the data, the, the big data, combined it with top secret, pro- we basically come up with the patterns. We figured out where, the, where, where things were at where these people were at. And then we started linking military capacity, that is units that can go do something to the bad guys. We started matching that and giving, and they, we came up with options for the commander or special operations command to have available to go do something. Able Danger was not an experiment. It was not data mining. It was designed to provide the command authority options to, com- to conduct offensive special operations attacks against al-Qaeda leadership or individuals or units. That's what it was. I, I, hear, I get really annoyed like, oh, it was an experiment. It wasn't an experiment. It was not an experiment. It was an actual operation designed to do something. And that's what Able Danger resulted in, options. Those options, Richard, were briefed uh, to Hugh Shelton, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, in January of 2001. Hmm. And that's literally, that's where the trail goes, goes cold. Uh, those options are nobody does anything with them. They literally are put on the shelf. We and, and we're all kind of scratching our head. And there was a change of command at Special Operations Command. General Holland, Air Force General, four star, replaces Pete Schoomaker. Pete Schoomaker retires, so Pete's personal interest is no longer there. General Holland, the new Air Force four star, and uh, it, who comes in, I think, in December of two thousand, doesn't have the same aggressive interest in it. And so when it, when the options are briefed to Hugh Shelton, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and I've met General Shelton, I've briefed him before, uh, everything stops. We don't know what happens. It just goes dark. There's no, there's no, there's no anything. And so within about three months, I start getting calls from Tampa, from Able Danger, because I'm up in DC where I'm, I live and run my unit from, from Scott Philpot. He's saying, hey, we, we need to do something. I said, what do you mean? It's like, well, we need to get back on pushing these options for implementation because we, we special operations command think something's about to happen. And it's like, what do you want me to do? And so he said, well, we want to use, I had a, a, a clandestine facility within the Northern Virginia area. They wanted to borrow for some of the stuff. And I was like, I'll try to get you authorization to do it. And then they started coming after me. It's like, I started getting shut down. I, I was 
pushed out. I couldn't do some of the operational things I wanted to do. Um, they started dismantling my unit and we're just kind of all mystified by everything kind of falling apart around us. It was really strange. And this is from January until essentially 9-11 attacks because it was just uh, nobody wanted to have us doing the planning against this target. It was the most bizarre thing, Richard, and we, we can't explain it to this day. But as leadership changed, as the Bush administration came in, all the options we had set up to do were dismantled. So, Well, don't you consider it effectively treason that you were ordered by essentially top levels of uh, either administration uh, to destroy uh, data that the FBI could have used to to shut this this inside the U.S. operation down. Well, I strongly uh, believe that someone should have been held accountable for that. Yes, this is one of those issues which I feel the 9-11 Commission purposely did not investigate, by the way, Richard. Mm. And um, the fact that this was a crime, the 9-11 attack was a crime, no matter who did it, there was a crime involved. Uh, thousands of people died. And you would think you'd want to go back and look at the evidence. I think that the data isn't as a point of evidence. And that, by the way, that's uh, full disclosure. We're here to talk about the the military commission, uh, military commission's defense organization, uh, mm. the guys defending the 9-11 hijackers. I've been in contact with them. Uh, the information we're talking about tonight, I've shared with them. Uh, and obviously they're part of the, the picture as well. And yeah, I told, I told the investigators, it's like, yeah, I think it's really peculiar that you have all this evidence that we knew all this about Al Qaeda, uh, but somehow it all gets destroyed. I don't know how, what, in what universe that's legal. I don't know. I mean, you have to understand, Richard, I started off as a counterintelligence guy. I've, I've been a special agent. I know what I would do as an investigator. Uh, I became an offensive uh, human guy, human intelligence, a case officer. So, you know, it's two sides of the same coin. Our job is to find ways to get things done as a, as a military operative. But to answer your question, uh, the, the special agent inside of me says, yeah, you, you need to go back and find out who directed the destruction why did they they order the destruction, and uh, did they break any laws in ordering that? Because I think there were, were things clearly that they did to avoid having certain data available as part of the investigation after the attack. Okay, I've heard that there were uh, some actual uh, violent threats against uh, the Able Danger Project by other members of the U.S. government so, agencies. Is that true? So. Yeah, I, I was threatened when I was putting together my testimony by an, a, a knucklehead who I really didn't feel as a threat. But yeah, he came in and threatened me. It was like, really, Carl? We'll just call him Carl. Carl, really? It's like, I don't think so. Anyway, um, during the time we were doing this, the other thing to remember, I was, I'm was i not a, a counterterrorism guy. I'm an operator. My job is to essentially, if, 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 if analysts or planners want something, my job is to go out and get it. Uh, my, it's like, go get it. If you figure it out, go get it. If you need, if it's information, go get the information. If it's, uh, 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 I used to do something called for material acquisition. I used to go, go and be undercover as a gray arms guy and buy weapons from, from third countries that we wanted to have access to. So my job is to go get it. Uh, I'm not fundamentally an expert on terrorism or, or Al Qaeda. When I came in, my job was to be the guy who helps get everything everybody else needs to be successful. So Able Danger being completely off the books, uh, out from all the different typical 
terrorism activities, either CI, Alex base, or even within DOD. We weren't, we weren't actually inside of any of the other cottage industries that consider themselves terrorist central. I mean, they had all these people, Richard, come on, it's a bureaucracy. They love their, their little, uh, 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 empires. And so we, we were outside of all those empires and there was massive attempts to get us under control of other organizations. I remember one time I got called in by a DIA defense intelligence agency senior. Uh, and basically he was the guru for counterterrorism in DIA. And his name was Art Zolke. And I, I like Art. I liked Art a lot. He's dead now. And I, 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 I mourn his passing. He was a good guy. Anyway, Art being the guy for DIA who basically owned the issue of terrorism calls me in and says, you need to turn over uh, Able Danger to us. We want to do it. It's like, you're not going to do it. No, it's an operation. No, you don't understand. You need to turn it over to us. Like, uh, no, I'm not. I've already talked to my operational leadership and I had, I talked to, to our, our general, uh, the DO, uh, and I, and he said, don't give it up. It's like, I'm not giving it up. So there was a confrontation within DI about who had ownership of the issue. Because again, uh, Richard, I was considered kind of a wild card because it, it, people had this impression that I just did whatever I wanted. That was never the case. I always did those things what nobody else wanted to talk about that we were doing. And this is one of those things that we were doing, which I thought was important and necessary. We had the authorization through Title 10 to do it. And we had intelligence bureaucrats fighting us for control because it was their dominion. It's like, no. But there was no armed um, invasion of any of your offices or facilities. Well, they seized documents, that's for sure. I mean, the, the, the whole Able Danger packet was seized from my office space when I was in Afghanistan in So they literally came in and, and took and things. Oh, yeah. Documents. The DIA? Yeah, yeah, yeah DIA did. Uh, and we don't know who. Yes, th those documents were seized. But they this wasn't under an armed uh, incident? Well, I don't know. I wasn't there when it happened, so I don't know if they were armed <laughs> or not. If they okay. were armed, I, I, I think it would have been cute. I mean, I think some of those guys, those, <laughs> those wannabe special agents, the uh, DIA, IG guys, they're very cute with guns. I mean, it's like they're like GQ. It makes them feel better if they're armed, I think. It's, it's just one yeah. of those things for them. So, Gotcha. Was it, did Able, Able Danger have any personnel in the Pentagon itself? Uh, during the attack, no. Uh, or ever, we um, we were always a, a. This is back before people understood kind of remote work. We were dispersed all over the country. Now, elements of my unit, Stratosciety, were working this near full time in Clarendon. There, the main cell was actually in uh, Tampa, where they were doing the main co coordination, and then they had an operational office out in Garland, and uh, Garland, Texas, near Dallas. Those were the mm -hmm. three principal kind of areas we were working. I had other units working for me outside of what I'm talking about here, but those were not directly supporting Able Danger. We were supporting, I had I had elements in uh, Alexandria, Old Town Alexandria, uh, up near BWI, and then Clarendon, uh, which were co-located or working with other DOD entities, but we th they were not directly supporting Able Danger. So... Okay. Well, let's jump to the uh, Guantanamo Military Commission because there sure. was a court filing. Let's jump to that. <clears throat> the defense organization uh, uh, had, had this just surfaced through spy talk. It's the 22-page sworn testimony of Don Canestraro. Yeah. And uh, as an, he was an investigator for the, for the defense of two of the five uh, 
the uh, five hijackers, uh, September 11th, accused of hijacking. Of course, they're being held in Guantanamo. Now, his sworn testimony um, mentions you and Abel Danger. Can you describe the context uh, in which uh, he does and and your 10-year relationship uh, with Don Canestro? So um, I got called in about 10 years ago after Dark Heart came out, after my book came out. And these guys, I had no idea they existed. And they are the Military Commission's Defense Organization. Uh, because we have a due process, not work. It doesn't work well necessarily all the time, but there is a due process. So Richard, the guys in Guantanamo, those that we were captured incidental to combat operations during the initial entry into Afghanistan, uh, the 9-11 hijack guys, and some were captured in Pakistan are now being held in Guantanamo. There's no secret. They're all there. So, um, Donald, Don comes to me. He calls me out of the blue. It's like, hey, uh, Colonel Schaefer, um, I'm I'm Special Agent uh, Canestrano. Um, first off, I, I I said, am I in trouble? It's like, no, you're not in trouble. It's like, that's good. <laughs> Anytime you get a Special Agent calling, it's like, okay, what's what's up? Anyway, it wasn't trouble, thank God, at least not for me. And so he said, look, uh, would you be coming willing to come down? And he explained that we're, we're the defense team for the 9-11 hijackers. Would you be willing to talk to us? And it's like, uh, yeah, sure. I, I have no problem with that. And so we meet in their facility in Northern Virginia and he explains what they're doing. And basically it's like, look, we've got to defend these guys. We're, we're going through and reviewing all the pertinent facts of the 9-11 attacks. And uh, we think uh, your whistleblowing is very interesting because you've brought up some elements that seem to parallel some other things that we've discovered. And he said, would you be willing to go through and explain able danger? So, so uh, Richard, I go through, uh, just like we're talking now, uh, about it, probably about a two to three hour session, I go through and explain everything we're talking about to Donald. And I said, look, um, I, I don't know what your plan is regarding them, uh, but you know, the fact is I have no problem disclosing to you what my direct knowledge is relating to my activities before 9-11. And those things which I've disclosed publicly or other things that I'm more than happy to provide you if it will be helpful regarding closed testimony or secret. If you if you have the clearance, if you want to talk at the secret level at some point, we can go do that as well. So I basically said I'm happy to have the conversation, which we did. We had a, a long conversation and everything we just talked about, Richard, I laid out to them. And so that was the beginning. And I think we've had a total of. Uh, three sessions where we sat down and gone through things in detail. And I've met with several investigators. And so they're basically said, or they said, well, our, our premise is that uh, things like your operation were not unique, that there were a number of things that the U S government refused to, um, to accept regarding threat, regarding knowledgeability of threat, regarding capability to counter the threat. And we believe that your, your organization is evidence of the fact that nine 11, could have been prevented by because you guys were directed to put up, put together offensive capabilities, which for some strange reason, you guys were not allowed to implement. And it's a strong, Richard, that's a strong statement, but it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of what the evidence shows. I mean, I don't know what else to say. We put this together. My colleagues and I put a great deal of effort into uh, planning against a, a threat we believe to be existential and real. And then all of a sudden, uh, you, lawyers are opposing you. You're being disbanded. You're being investigated. 
gee, it sounds kind of peculiar to me. So maybe there was something that happened that didn't allow us to go forward with the work we were told to do. And so that was the beginning of, of the time I spent with Don. Now, since then, uh, Don has continued their investigation. And, and the, the, the pleading you're mentioning, I think, is some of the strongest evidence uh, of government at least knowledge, because two of the hijackers were escorted by a guy named Anwar Alalaki. Anwar Alalaki, by the way, for those paying attention, was assassinated in Yemen along with his son by Barack Obama in a uh, hellfire strike in Yemen. Mm -hmm. So I said at the time that uh, that was not about, Anwar Alalaki was no existential threat. He was a priest who was on the run. And I think they 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 killed killed him because he had direct knowledge about whatever we're talking about here. He was a oh. U.S. person. He, no, I'm serious, Richard. This was an assassination of a U.S. person, no doubt. Anwar Alalaki was assassinated by Barack Obama. I've said a number of times that they did not want that man alive because of what he knew. Anwar Alalaki became an asset of the FBI in the late 90s while he was a holy man in, in California. He was found with prostitutes. I, I, I don't know about holy men and prostitutes, not my job, but he got caught and the FBI made him a deal he couldn't refuse and he became an asset. So he is an asset then were, was basically, and this is what the, the, the pleading talks about, had a direct relationship with the FBI. CIA knew that these guys were directly linked. So the FBI and CIA had full knowledge that these guys completely outside of able danger. I mean, again, like I said, Richard, we tried to get CIA on board. They wouldn't play. So yeah. whatever happened over here with CIA and FBI was completely separate from what we were doing in able danger. And so it appears to me that they came, they, the FBI and CIA, had direct knowledge that these guys were linked to Al-Qaeda, the same as we knew. We knew from our own separate independent investigation had linked these guys to the Al-Qaeda leadership. But more importantly, we weren't tracking them. We weren't tracking them day to day. They were. They, the uh -huh. CIA and FBI, were tracking these guys day to day. And that's where the distinction with the difference comes in. And I think that's what Don says in his pleading. It's like, look, there's evidence of direct knowledge here by the U.S. government regarding these guys and why and what they're doing. So I think that's pretty I think that's pretty groundbreaking and uh, interesting. And I think uh, it's, it's, it's something that clearly indicates to me that all the things I know about that are dangling participles, if you excuse my French, regarding what they've discovered now, I think it's very clear that there's something that, that we need to find out regarding what did the government know and when did it know it regarding the 9-11 attacks. Well, they certainly knew that al-Bayoumi, uh, a Saudi intelligence official, was providing uh, rent for apartments and uh, helping the two hijacker, al -Hazmi, hijackers, al-Hazmi right. and al-Midar, with uh, getting driver's licenses in San Diego. Right. And this was immediately after they attended an al-Qaeda uh, meeting in Kuala right. Lumpur, which was videotaped um, by intelligence agencies. Right. So all of this is is known. It's it's it, it raises all kinds of questions about the CIA's deeper involvement in the handling of these hijackers, not just the uh, and FBI too. They're, they're, both organizations, I think, uh, are equally responsible here, culpable. But I understand your point, Richard. But yes, do you agree with my assessment there? Though I do, I, I completely agree with it. Look, um, I I understand that CIA has its own objectives, which go beyond intelligence collection. We all know it. 
I don't agree with those. I am not, I'm trained by CIA. I'm not CIA, but I do understand they kind of run their own game. And I think this is one of those cases where they were running a separate game from all of us. When I was in Afghanistan, just as a note, when I was running operations there, CIA was not involved in anything I was doing. As a matter of fact, Operation Darkheart was planned to be an operation by for DOD only to go into Pakistan to get Zawahiri because we didn't trust CIA. I'm just telling you, there's reasons why we work separately from CIA. And to this day, I still, uh, again, while I'm trained by them, we are not CIA. And I think it's very important. And I think another reason we have to have separate intelligence collection agencies because we cannot trust I don't trust my own folks sometimes, uh, but you cannot, you know, I think they were running their own game here in, in many ways. And that's something, again, that needs to be investigated because they were not investigated to the level necessary as part of the 9-11 commission. Well, what are the possibilities of those games? Would you care well, to speculate? Um, I, I don't I don't want to speculate, but I will say factually, based on my own experience, CIA has repeatedly done things which were inimical to what I believe to be the best interests of the United States, that that they do their own thing. Uh, again, that's why in, in Afghanistan for Operation Darkheart, we were going to do Darkheart. We're going to go in and get Zawahiri without telling CIA. We were just going to like tell them after the fact because we didn't trust them. Um, one time I was running an operation in against a, uh, a target. I, I, I got to be careful. We were running an operation, a, a super off the books operation. It's just like the movies, you know, way off the books. And I was meet, meeting Tyler Drumheller. Tyler Drumheller has passed now. He was the at the time uh, a senior uh, officer and former chief of station at, at uh, CIA. During this meeting, uh, we were briefing him on our one of our, my case officers' missions. We were about to launch him on, and um, he stopped me stopped us and he said shut the door and it's like we had just briefed him on the super secret stuff as we couldn't figure out why he shut the door uh tyler had had to shut the door and he looked at me and says are you really dod and we the my officer we look at each other like what it's like are you really dod and it's like yeah i'm really dod i'm really you know i really work for the pentagon no no you can you can level with me uh, i'm leveling with you we're really DOD. And uh, he finally says, oh, I guess it's true. He says, well, you have to understand that we have officers within CIA running operations against us. Now, this, think about this, Richard. I'm sitting with a guy in charge of a major element of the CIA telling me and my, my case officer that uh, he thought we were running an internal op within CIA. That's how effed up they are. So, hmm. so think about that. I mean, this, this is how crazy this is so the idea that somehow they you know either by senior edict or by operational detachment within cia i, I think there's things that bad that bad things can happen in cia so i'm just saying i don't know what happened here but i'm pretty sure it's not good well what canistraro revealed was that the fbi was also being spied on by the CIA and yes. they weren't cia was not sharing information but they That's wanted true. to know everything that the fbi knew Right. And that just smells bad. Well, again, <laughs> I part of my job when I was in Athens, you're going to laugh at this, Richard. Uh, I, my job in, and when I went to Athens undercover with FBI was to figure out if CIA's station chief was actually supporting the local terrorists in Athens. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. So part of my, you know, 
we spies get into these really wacky things. So part of my job uh, uh, basically was to figure out and 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 I, look, I'll just tell, put it out there. Pete Shields was uh, was an instructor at the farm. One of my instructors when I went through the farm and Pete was chief of station. And so my job was to go in and figure out was CIA on our side or were they on the side of the terrorists? I'm not joking because FBI was ready to indict him if they found evidence that he was supporting this terrorist organization. I'm not I'm not making I mean, it's just that's that's the way it was. So I'm just telling you that the spy versus spy thing is real. And what Don says in this is completely within scope of what I've seen happen within the intelligence community over and over. Wow. Yeah, wow. uh, Well, I've already asked you that. Um, I'm I'm wondering if Abel Danger picked up anything on the CIA where, you know, what, what are these guys doing? Because maybe they're, again, uh, not just infiltrating, but handling uh, these ter- these terrorist hijackers from the beginning. So it's a very good question because, again, because we were firewalled from CIA, except for a, a few small exceptions. At the at, in late two thousand, uh, Tenet did come down. George Tenet did come down for a briefing on what we were doing, and um, he was very impressed. And as a matter of fact, he made his own copy. I don't remember the name of it, but, but uh, CIA made their own copy of the Able Danger model. Um, and uh, they did have a rep inside of, they eventually put an analyst into Garland. So they kind of knew a little bit of what was going on, but there was no intelligence exchange. So I honestly don't know what what we were coming up with, with what they already knew. Uh, again, our job was to look at the data and make sense of it. It was not to... Um, it was not to figure out at that point in time what CIA was doing. Although, like I said, I've had my experiences with CIA, and and I could tell you stories, Richard, of me getting into shouting contests with some of the some of Tenet's guys and gals. As a matter of fact, one gal in particular. But that's that's probably a story for another day. So, well, uh, these stories are going to be helpful, I imagine, to the defense team in in Guantanamo. Well, I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to believe so. Yeah. Is there is what? How much can you tell them? Uh, more than you've shared here, I, I hope. Well, there's the classified, there's the closed hearing piece, which we've not gotten to, and the top secret documents, which SOCOM still has. So I've basically told them a roadmap where to go find the documents. And um, I know the people who wrote, the, uh, as a matter of fact, I know the guy who wrote the original Able Danger Operations Plan. And uh, he worked for Hugh Shelton. Uh, for the time, it was very, I mean, the Able Danger Plan was the first time ever, Richard, that Special Operations Command was the supported sink. That means, for all intents and purposes, Special Operations Command had to lead globally to go do this. And it never happened before. It happened, again, recently when we were going after after ISIS. Uh, as a matter of fact, I gave the advice to uh, the Pentagon to, to basically get that plan out. And basically, the, when I was briefing the guy about the plan. He said, I wrote the plan. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know the plan then. So just go do it. So I'm just saying that, that, um, the, the information is all there. I told them where to go find it. Uh, I'm willing to sit down and go through to whatever level they ask to include going back in a skiff. Uh, 
DOD will give me back my clearance when it's convenient to them. So I, I'll be happy to sit down and go through this at the top secret level if they still need that. Because there are details still uh, top secret and beyond regarding this. So I've mm-hmm. offered that to them. I mean, the defense team, you know, they're, they're DOD guys. They've got clearances. So I'm happy to provide them whatever information they need. Richard, well, the bottom line to me is the ahead. more that we can get out legally and, and, and put sunlight on this issue, the more chances there are for a new investigation. To, to go well, through all of this. So you put a lot of sunlight on to on it when you were uh, I- interviewed by the judicial judiciary committee and what, 2004, 2005 and 2004 you, and 2005. Yeah. You gave a lot of information there that you can't even give today. Right. That's true. So there are two options within the able danger operation that to this day remain beyond top secret. Yes, that's true. But uh, is there anything in that uh, hearing, which we can get publicly in the open sessions, well, that you can't say today? Well, there's that there is a transcript of the closed hearings in front of the uh, Emerging Threat Committee of House Armed Services that I do I do believe that should be completely declassified. I can't do that. The one thing I can tell you that was not classified that was uh, that happened in closed hearing was Phil Zelikow. Phil Zelikow refused to testify in open hearings and in closed hearings, he basically made every excuse he could for why he didn't investigate able danger. Now, to me, that's not classified. The fact that that he as a bureaucrat uh, did not want to go down a path is not is not revealing of any defense secrets. What it speaks to is the fact that the 9-11 Commission uh, and I was told by one of the commissioners in in person, face to face, and I'll quote, everybody on that commission was covering for somebody, unquote. All so, right. so Zelikow was no different. And Zelikow was the master uh, manipulator. I'll use that as a polite term of art, uh, who basically uh, kept the truth from not kept the truth from getting into what they wanted to tell. Well, he had outlined the entire 9-11 commission report before the investigators That's ever correct. met with each other. That's correct. And he and he wrote the report. Uh, they did not. And uh, for those of you guys who don't know, his Ph.D. was on the creation and maintenance of public myth. And it's a great myth. He did a great job. He should he should get a, like a Nobel Peace Prize for being able to turn myth into near fact. It's really it's you, a really good job. You I mean, called it fiction, the 9-11 Commission report. Can you tell us why? Because it, it was b- based on a narrative that was designed before the investigation even started. Uh, that's it. Okay. All right. Uh, Richard, I mean, look, I've been I've been around the block a couple of times and I've had to do investigations. I've had to be in intrigues. Uh, the fact is, if you start laying out uh, a predetermined answer without any facts, I don't I, I think that is more of a novel than it is any uh, document of fact that people should base anything off of regarding. Well, action. It's, it's worse than that. It's propaganda. It is propaganda uh, yeah, designed no for a purpose. And we can imagine the purpose to go to war. And so that raises the question, was this whole 9-11 uh, effort uh, planned and executed uh, from the end, from the beginning to the end? in order to achieve the outcomes, i.e. regional hegemony in the Middle East, which the Project for a New American Century uh, outlined as their chief goal, along with a vast expansion of the military budget, uh, all of which they got because they said, absent a catalyzing and catastrophic event 
like a new Pearl Harbor, these goals will take uh, uh, a, a long, long, long time to achieve. So uh, when when you consider that, uh, is, is, it any, is it for you an even more disturbing picture uh, than just the data that you realized with Able Danger? So um, I think a lot of us at the time of late 90s, early 2000s, were growing up and learning the reality of how the U.S. government functions. And since then, Richard, uh, we've seen what's been called the deep state. Now, the deep state, I think, is that permanent bureaucracy, a leviathan, if you will, which basically will build itself up and focus on what benefits it, not the American people, not the Constitution, and it will ally with whatever political party or entity within the political party that will benefit them and allow them to continue that march forward. So I would argue the military-industrial complex, the military-industrial congressional complex that Eisenhower warned us of has continued to grow. I didn't know that in 99-2000. That I was a, a fairly young, you know, I'm older now, obviously, but we were all very enthusiastic in the cause of defending the nation, all of the people I worked with. Our job was to figure out things and make things happen. This larger context you're talking about wasn't on my radar. Uh, I was a mid-level uh, operative doing high-level things for senior folks. The senior folks I was working for wanted us to be successful and do things. Uh, I came to find the hard way that the, as many folks who were helping and wanting me to do those hard things successfully were up against other forces, some in the government, some outside the government, that didn't want that. They wanted things differently. And that 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 break, I still don't fully understand because it exists to this day where you have good men and women serving every day doing their best to uphold their, their oath of office, facing uh, extraordinarily difficult challenges, sometimes baffling challenges about why decisions are made the way they are and what the outcomes they are trying to seek. So this is something that I still, I can't fully understand, but I can tell you there is something more because clearly all these things we've talked about, all these unresolved issues, factual issues, this isn't conspiracy. This isn't uh some theory about something that someone didn't uh, doesn't fully comprehend. We're talking about things I personally experienced, I've witnessed, I've had others testify to. Uh, we actually, uh, just a note for your audience, uh, a guy named Crane, Special Agent Crane, who did the investigation of Abel Danger, John Crane, became a whistleblower and said, yeah, we, we set you all up as the Abel Danger guys. We were never going to allow you to, to state the facts. We we were told what to say regarding the Able Danger report. So oh. you tell me what that means. If you have people who literally front load a report for the 9-11 Commission, front load and determine what they're going to say about us as the Able Danger folks regarding the final report, I don't know. What is that supposed to mean? I don't know. Okay. Well, let's broaden the picture. Sure. Uh, you and I had a conversation uh, a little bit earlier about uh, World Trade Center Building 7. Yeah. And I wanted to uh, bring our our folks uh, aboard, because if we consider together uh, the evidence that you've been sharing with us, uh, along with the evidence in the destruction of the three World Trade Center skyscrapers, then we have an even more disturbing picture, uh, because uh, 
my work for over the last 18 years has been dominated by uh, assembling and uh, and presenting the evidence for the explosive destruction by incendiaries and by high energy explosives uh, of all three of these skyscrapers. And many people don't even know about Building 7. I was delighted to hear from you that you did. Oh, no, I know about it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And for those that don't, let's just bring them aboard real quick. Sure. We've got a 47 story skyscraper that um, survived the uh, destruction of the towers, which were hit by planes, but this one was not. And so here it is after the towers go down. And at about 5 p.m., uh, 5 20 p.m., after witnesses hear explosions, this is what happens to this building. Uh, the East Penthouse comes down first, and six seconds later, the entire building drops like a rock straight down uniformly, symmetrically, into its own footprint. And so uh, it's very disturbing because the fires, which were alleged by NIST to have caused this collapse, were few and far between. They're small, they're fairly scattered. And, and that's about it. And fires have never brought down a steel frame fireproof skyscraper in history, ever. And so uh, we, we then get this on 9-11, uh, the entire building. So uh, everybody recognizes this as a controlled demolition. Even Dan Rather uh, uh, says the following. It's amazing. Amazing, incredible, pick your word. For the third time today, it's reminiscent of those pictures we've all seen too much on television before when a building was deliberately destroyed, destroyed by well-placed dynamite to knock it down. So we wanted to uh, get your impression uh, of, of this building's collapse, uh, yeah, uh, if you will. So um, I've spoken at a number of 9-11 events, and I've talked about wanting to remain focused on provable fact. And to me, Richard, this is provable. Um, the folks who did the investigation, the, the government folks, uh, the measurements folks, what was the name of the organization, uh, Richard, that did the investigation? Yes, to the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Standards. So one of the questions which to me is, correct me if I'm wrong, 9-11 was a terrorist attack, right? I mean, terrorism is in the title. And yet when they investigated this, Richard, they didn't bother to check for explosives. I mean, terrorists were involved and you're not checking fundamentally for explosives. So to me, that's the first clue is like something's wrong, because even if no aircraft hit the building, uh, something happened to cause catastrophic damage that resulted in the collapse. So how is it you don't go through every single interrogatory, who, what, when, where, why, and how, and answer everything within each one of those categories? And then to then resist the idea that people like you, who are professionals, who understand architecture, uh, they resist then uh, having their work questioned. Uh, to me, again, it makes no sense. Uh, anybody who, and I, I've, got, I, I've got a degree in environmental studies, I'm not a scientist, but I understand the basic scientific facts of, of how you do investigations and you use scientific uh, methods to get to the bottom and, and presume a solution or conclusion. None of that was actually done here using scientific method or fact that I can tell. Now, I'm not, I'm not a professional like you. I'm a layman. 
But I'm just saying from what I've observed as an, as an intelligence officer, as someone who's had to do investigations, it seems to me that the very fact that they won't look at uh, every element of what is necessary to understand circumstance, especially relating to the fact it was a terrorist attack that day, that they won't go through and examine it. So to me, this is this there is something going on, which again looks a lot like a a, a cover up because this is not a hard thing to do. They should be the first ones. They New York City, federal government should be all in on trying to figure out how this thing came down, unless of course they already know. And 3,600 architects and engineers have publicly signed a document demanding a new investigation uh, based on uh, the evidence, the evidence of melting girders, uh, which doesn't happen in office fires. This takes minimum 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit to melt steel and 4,000 degrees uh, to evaporate steel. And that was documented by the FEMA report author. And they, they talk about molten steel found, uh, and, and it's documented in the FEMA report, too. Right. Hot uh, sulfur corrosion attack on the steel, turning steel beams into Swiss cheese. Uh, we, we only have a quarter of the temperatures required to accomplish this. Liquid iron, that's molten iron, hot sulfur corrosion attack on the steel very well documented by FEMA, but completely wiped out uh, by the NIST report when they came along and and uh, claiming, oh, we couldn't even test the steel. But that was the very piece of steel that was tested. Right. And we have molten uh, iron uh, pouring out of the the material held in the crab claw excavators. We know it's 2,800 degrees because of the color of it. That's just the physics of it. So a lot of problems. Um, and now when we get into the actual dust, Tony, we have uh, three inch thick blankets of powdered concrete all over lower Manhattan. Oh, I saw the I was there right after it happened. Yeah. Ah, well, this is powdered concrete and gypsum. So it, this is this is a third of the weight of the building, the concrete, and yet it's pulverized to small uh, particles, uh, 100 micron particles. It can't have contributed to the weight of the explosion, uh, the, excuse me, the weight of, of the collapsing building upon itself. Neither could the steel because the steel uh, has been uh, uh, put uh, out, um, uh, hur hurled laterally at 80 miles an hour, landing 600 feet in every direction. So it's also not available to crush the building. That's two-thirds of the way to the building. We get to the actual studies of, of the dust by a team of eight international scientists, and they find nanothermite chips uh, in all this, the, the studies, which is now in a peer-reviewed 25-page peer-reviewed paper, uh, which these red-gray chips uh, have the ingredients of thermite, iron oxide, and aluminum powder in all of them. Uh, so this is um, an engineered incendiary to become more explosive by its nanoscale. It's a thousand, these particles are a thousand times smaller than the diameter of a human hair. This stuff is not made in a cave in Afghanistan. I'm wondering, did you right. find any of this stuff when you uh, went to Afghanistan? No, we found a lot of goats, but no nano stuff. Just saying. <laughs> okay. So, so no, you I mean, can see why so many of us are, are so disturbed. No, so I, I agree with your premise, Richard, completely. I've said, uh, as a matter of fact, last time I spoke in New York on this uh, years ago, 
with Co- uh, Colleen Rowley. We talked about this at an event. And I said, look, building seven to me is beyond uh, the pale. You've got to find a way to, uh, to investigate this because it is clearly something wrong. The other thing I found interesting, I think you all recognize and realize that the emergency response center for the NYPD in uh, responding to a terrorist attack was in building seven and they didn't use it. So to me, that's a clue that the fact that they had set up a federal response uh, with New York NYPD Mm -hmm. in building seven, but they didn't use it. So it's kind of like, okay, so that's to me like, yeah, no, it's a clue. It's like, really? So well, here's another clue. Um, we, we, we have uh, the, the, the South Tower on the right and the a known controlled demolition on the left. Is there any similarity? Well, uh, an awful lot of similarity there. In fact, if you zoom in on the South Tower, uh, its destruction, you, you see what the first responders are describing, 200 of them, uh, like a belt, all these explosions all the way around each uh, side uh, of, of the towers. And then if you zoom in, on the this this completely symmetrical destruction all the way down, uh, tell me what we're looking at here, Tony. From your perspective, oh, well, no, I, I again, I'm not an expert on uh, physics or uh, particle dynamics, so, but I'm right, saying that you've blown up stuff, right? I've blown up stuff. Yes. No. Look, uh, blow, uh, does this look like blown up stuff? Explosives are generally designed especially in an environment where you're just blowing things up to blow them up to be asymmetric. There's no uh, symmetry to it. If you're punching a hole, you punch a hole. If you're taking something out like a building, you can collapse it. Uh, Like thermobaric bombs can take out the whole thing. That's a little bit of a different class of weapon, but that just, it it just blows everything out. Um, I, my experience is, is that, that you have in buildings I've seen fall, even earthquakes just recently, Richard, there were some earthquakes overseas where you see the building going over, falling over because of, of the asymmetric uh, nature of the failure. Certain parts fa- fall at different fail at different times, and it, it just starts leaning and then falls over. I think it was Turkey where they had a number of videos of these buildings collapsing uh, based on the asymmetric failure of their structure. So to me, obviously, asymmetry is the typical result of, of uh, forces which impact on a structure unless there's a design to do it a certain way. So I I'm with you on this. The one thing I, I don't know that you guys are the experts on, on the physics and on the materials. The one thing I do know that based on your research, based on my direct knowledge, some of the things I've observed over the years, there's beyond a, uh, the need there's beyond clear indications of a need of an independent organization and an investigative body that can come in with no agenda that can simply with qualified people examine the full spectrum of facts from the intelligence leading up to the attack day of the attack post response and analysis of the attack and lay out the facts to the american people and that's what we actually need at this point yeah because um we also have uh, these isolated explosive ejections occurring 20, 40, and even 60 stories down below what's supposed to be a gravitational collapse. There's right. nothing that it can, can explain this except explosives. And that's what the first responders, a couple of hundred of them, heard. Uh, so the NIST report makes no sense uh, whatsoever when, when you get down to it. Well, um, 
This is, so, this is something you may want to talk to the 9-11 Commission folks about, because uh, clearly, Richard, their premise, we're here trying and, and, and no surprise to the audience here that we're talking to, the, the, the premise basically that, that, that Donald and his team are coming up with is like, yeah, our guys did it, but they were set up. And, and I think that's where the, there's ample evidence. And I think that's why he put out that pleading, that very long pleading, talking about the findings of their investigation to date regarding the potential involvement of people and organizations within the government that either had prior knowledge or involvement, take your pick, of, of the 9-11 uh, hijackers and their activities. And I think that this is this all to me is a witch's brew of of unanswered questions, uh, everything that we've talked about. And I think, again, this is this may be a, a valid area for the 9-11 planners, because I, I don't doubt those guys did what they did. I don't doubt that airplanes flew in. But I think there's a lot more to the story that that needs to be told here, because I don't think it's the full story. And I think uh, when you well, examine the facts of what's in the 9-11 report versus what we're talking about today, there's no there's no there's no link. So, well, Tony, it, 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 do you think the 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 hijackers had access to three of the most highly secure buildings outside the Pentagon to plant these explosives? No, I, no, I don't think. Look. It wasn't the terrorists. Who, if if there was explosives, and whoever did World Trade Center Seven didn't, were not were not uh, the guys who are credited for the attack. The, no, there's none of the Al Qaeda guys were ever, and I know this to pretty good detail. None of the Al Qaeda guys ever showed up at World Trade Center Seven and had a tour or had access to it that I know of. So that if you detach. If you look at the 9-11 attacks, just what is said regarding the terrorist events, <laughs> there's no link between them and Building 7. Something else happened in Building 7. So if the, yeah, well, this same thing happened in the Twin Towers, as we've just seen. And as our two-hour documentary uh, proves irrefutably, And the, so the question is, if the towers... Uh, were destroyed by explosives, all three of them, then doesn't that cast grave doubt on the entire operation? Meaning, would the deep state trust uh, hijackers that failed Cessna no. flying school to, to hit these targets? Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't, why would you go through that risk and that trouble when you could just... Uh, uh, operate the planes remotely, which technology was available, fly them where they're supposed to go with military outfitted uh, planes designed not so uh, accurately to look like uh, civilian aircraft uh, to then hit their targets and then at the right time push the button. So again, you're beyond my knowledge. Uh, the the facts that I understand relating to the 9-11 attacks focus on al-Qaeda and the cells we identified. And I do believe that the individuals who were said to die that, die that day died that day. I think they were, I think they were convenient uh, proxies. I think they were patsies, to use a term. But I have no doubt they died that day. And I have no doubt from the information I had that they were planning to do it. And I have no doubt that they were shepherded through the process, that there was prior government knowledge of these individuals. Look, we, tra we tracked them. We tracked them separate from CIA. Yeah. CIA and FBI had their tracking. We had our tracking. So I, I do believe, Richard, because two, three separate organizations were looking at 
the activities from from completely different perspectives. Well, our perspective was completely separate from their perspective because they didn't want to play with us, and that's fine. We didn't want to play with them. But I'm just saying that based on my knowledge of of what we learned during the intelligence collection, during the planning, they did it. I think they did it. The the stuff that you're stipulating, I don't necessarily have an opinion of because I'm not an expert. The one thing I know we can agree upon is is building seven. So, uh huh. And those who uh, confessed that they did it confessed after how many waterboardings? No. Again, I'm not disagreeing with you on that. I I said a number. You know, I don't know if you know if you read Darkheart. Um, I was offered access to that interrogation program. It's like, no, I'm not. I'm not getting involved in that. Look, uh, I don't believe. I said in my book, there may be a limited time where you have a Jack Bauer moment where you have to get something out of someone, but that's. And the idea generally is that once you've captured someone, uh, if you start torturing them, there 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 are techniques that that you can use. I've I've used techniques to break people. Uh, if you read Darkheart. We, the FBI and I, during interrogation in Afghanistan, over three days, were able to break a terrorist enabler. We were. We didn't touch him. We didn't beat him. We were able to kind of get inside of his head and convince him that his cooperation would would help him a lot. Otherwise, he was going to end up in in Gitmo, and it worked. So, but we didn't touch him. And but I and I don't believe in torture. I don't believe that torture gets you the information that's actually true and correct because they're going to tell you whatever you want to hear to make you go away eventually. That's what, that's what ends up happening. And otherwise it's not reliable. So I do believe that the, the, they're going to have huge problems. That is the prosecution of these individuals, the ones we're talking about because they were tortured, but it doesn't change the fact they're not going to go on trial. And and I, I think it's going to happen. And I think, and that's why that's one of the reasons supporting the defense team is because I think the conversation we're having tonight, plus what they're digging up, is further evidence that there needs to be a complete reexamination of every aspect of the 9-11 attacks. Even if you and I don't agree on every fact, we can agree on the fact that that things don't add up and we need to have uh, a, a deep and abiding uh, review that results in factual information being presented, not not narratives that are designed to tell a story. Mm. Thank you, Tony. And uh, I know we have a number of questions from our right. audience, so let's bring in Gail. And hello, yeah. wonderful one. Hello. Are, we're ready for questions. Boy, have you enjoyed the conversation so I far? I am. Gail? I'm loving it. You know, I do get a little distracted because I have to go look at questions and monitor all these questions and comments, but I am being blown away. Yes. Yeah, me too. Um, uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's see what we got here for Tony. All right. Let me get re-centered here again. All right. It's up on the screen. Question. Tony, is the Mossad a friend of the U.S.? What do you know about the five Israelis arrested on 9-11? Not a thing. That that one of the things about the operations we run, we have no foreign nationals involved. We don't brief foreign nationals. Um, I, no idea. Uh, the and the, by the way, the Mossad is loyal to the Israelis. That is their first concern. One of the things I have learned, having done this, is that every intelligence agency is only beholden and loyal to the country it works for. So um, take that for what it is. But no, I have no direct knowledge of those guys. Okay. All right. This next question is a little long, so I'm just going to read it rather than put it up on the banner. 9-11 Truth Movement attorneys have a sworn affidavit that states, 
under penalty of perjury that you and two other Able Danger briefers told a counterintelligence training class at Fort Huachuca <laughs> in the summer of 2000, 14 months before 9-11, that Able Danger had been, had been and was tracking two cells of terrorist operatives inside the U.S. who would, not might, but would hijack airliners and crash them into the World Trade Center in New York and select targets in Washington, D.C., and that Able Danger had already briefed the FBI as well as the CIA and NASA, or NSA, sorry, who at or with the FBI had already received the same briefing being given to the Fort Huachuca counterterrorism class in the summer of 2000? The answer is no. <laughs> no. I, I, there, there's, I, no. I'm not even going to address it. That is so far into science fiction. No. Okay. Mm. All right. All right. Let's get the next question. Sorry. Little pause there. Um, it's very challenging. There's a ton of comments mixed in with all these questions. So I am very sorry. One moment, please. That's okay. All right. Question. Would Anthony's work include getting information collected by NSA? Yes. So part of the Able Danger Project was for us, DIA, my, I was, as I said, part of my role was to go out and get things for the larger operation. When I was talking about the open database, all the data we got together, the unclassified data, we then combined that for targeting to with classified data. Part of that data was the NSA database. Yes. We actually took a copy of the NSA database at the time. It was about, I don't know, about a football size thing. I mean, you know, uh, today, you can put a lot of data on little things like this. Back in those days, you'd have to have like a, a, a literally a, a um, container this big for the, the data. And yes, we they were able to get uh, unstructured data from NSA and combine it with the overall targeting. So the answer is yes. All right. Next question. What does Lieutenant Schaefer believe Israel's role was? Who did ACE Elevator employees work for? Who are the ACE Elevator employees? What was Philip Zelikow's role? Were there neocons, Zionists, and the State Department who had a role in 9-11? I've explained my knowledge. I, I have none, none of that. I have no idea. All right. And where was Anthony on 9-11 and what was his first thoughts? We went, we went over that. You did. Yes, you did. Yeah, okay. Go back and see the uh, beginning of the show. Exactly. You? Yes, that's the first question. Who stole the gold from the basement vaults in the World Trade Center? No idea. <laughs> All right. Would you describe what we are experiencing today in America, a kind of communist insurgency insurrection? Um. Yeah. Build Back Better and the World Economic Forum is attempting to restate Marxism for the 21st century. Um, the woke issues that I see every day are essentially Marxism uh, with a rainbow flag. And it's all designed to create uh, discontent between groups, either by race or economic divide. So, yeah, uh, my my I, I, we do a podcast called um, uh, the the. Well, let me think of it here a second. I have diff different projects for different things. Um, 
thought to action for the London Center, which I run. And we talk about the World Economic Forum and theories on political events which are going on. But yes, I do believe that much of what we're seeing right now is designed to create uh, a harm and discontent, you know, all sorts of discontent within the United States. I've uh, said we are a lot like 1934 Germany in many aspects because of the war on truth, the abundantly (laughs) uh, active effort by the left to suppress free speech and free expression. A lot of the things we're talking about, I'm going to tell you right now, people are going to be really upset about because they don't like hearing about this stuff. So yeah, I think there's a a definite effort to suppress what a free thought, free expression, and uh, uh, essentially any form of critical thought. So yes. Awesome. Great answer. Does Anthony know why an airliner from Asia traveling over Alaska was ordered to squawk the hijack code 7500? No idea. All right. What is happening in the U.S. today has been a long time coming. I guess this is more of a a statement. The 9-11 PSYOPs are only a small part of it. It's very Mm. true. But comment on that, if you would, Tony. Well, look, I think, uh, Richard, our basic discussion today, uh, our dialogue on this indicates that there were a number of deceptions and uh, half-truths and stories that were created by different organizations to help uh, create uh, uh, a a very blurry picture of what happened that day. Um, Instead of fact-finding, we've seen people engage in narrative construction instead of creative uh, investigations working to essentially find everything as every aspect and answer questions they've done they've done the opposite they've tried to deny facts and hide things they don't like so no I think it's it's abundantly clear that something even to this day is still going on look but let me say something about this too I've been very critical of the 9/11 truth movement and because I believe it was very early on infiltrated by those who were investig- in, invested in hiding the 9/11 attacks. Uh, they, they, I think they worked to undermine any creative uh, uh, solutions regarding the attack. That's why I've always been skeptical, because so many things happened that I believe the other side had. You know, what's Case Sestrin? Didn't Case Sestrin come out and say that his job was to to go in and and, and basically discredit anybody who had any criticism of the government on it, something like that? So, oh, I've Cass always, Sunstein, you mean? That, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. guy. Cognitive so, infiltration. Right. So I, I believe, you know, that that's part of the, the deal here is that people have been trying to purposely upend any credibility by throwing in some things which were really wacky. And then uh, it's like they, they create something. It's like the Nancy Pelosi thing. It's that that retail smear. They've done the retail smear uh, against the 9-11 movement. That's what, so, they, you know, they come up with something wacky. They throw it into the mix. To get it injected, and then see they they point at it. see see you can't believe it. So, so that's why I've always been very skeptical, and I think this is something that people have to recognize: is that those who I've said from day one there is adequate and substantial evidence of incompetence, if nothing else, that needs to be investigated regarding how it happened. I think incompetence it goes beyond incompetence at this point, based on these things we're now discovering. But clearly, there's something that should be done to get to the bottom of it. And to your point, Richard, if people were actively involved in destroying evidence of a crime, I think that should be something that people can... Pro- I don't think there's a, 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 a any expiration date for prosecuting people who were involved in a, in a murder. So I think, you know. Well, if you were to say some of the things that you've said 
today uh, to your colleagues and at uh, higher level ups, higher ups, um, vocally on your website at the London Center, uh, you could make a huge uh, impact uh, from your credible position of well, calling out the the false flag operation. I, I call this out all the time. No, I, I look. I, I guess you and look. I I call this stuff out all the time as I see it. I do believe, and I've said I've been very everything we're talking about tonight. I have already said in some form in the media in the past. And there's nothing new except for maybe the Don Castrano stuff because that is new within the last couple of months. But everything else I've talked about. So I do believe that there were. Great discrepancies. Sandy Berger. Let's just talk about Sandy Berger for quick, a quick moment. Yeah. Sandy Berger, and I talked about this in another uh, blog interview with Stephen Gardner recently. Sandy Berger was, during the run-up to the 9-11 investigation, he was going to be a witness, and he was sent in to the National Archives to, to collect top-secret code word documents, and he stuck them in his pants and his shoes, and he destroyed them. So the information we have is that those were briefing documents to President Clinton regarding the existence of our operation. And yet nobody seems to be worried because, you know, he got a slap on the wrist like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, we know that otherwise it's really kind of treasonous. We should probably lock you away because you stole top secret documents and destroyed them. But eh, we're just going to suspend your clearance for six months and you can go on. Who does that? Yeah. So I'm just saying that uh, I talk about this stuff all the time. Nobody seems to worry about it, though. That's my but, but you haven't had uh, Richard Gage 9-11 on your podcast. Well, that's true. Well, no, we, we could do that. I'd like to have you on our podcast sometime, Richard. That'd be good. All right. Well, that's that's kind of what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, Getting no, I the like evidence that. I like that. out there. When yeah. I talk, I, I'm just going to talk about evidence. And I'm going to back you up 100% because all I talk about is scientific forensic evidence, which is no, irrefutable. I, I appreciate that. No, I do. I do. So, All right. We'll do all right. That. The, the next question is already there. It says, would you talk about peers who quietly agreed with you about 9-11? Question. I, I think most people... This is a, a tif it's not difficult to answer. It's difficult to phrase the answer correctly. I wouldn't still be here standing. I would not be in this beautiful house with this amazing studio and office if people didn't believe me. Uh, I've had people, mostly the Reagan guys behind the scenes, do their best to protect me from whatever forces you care to say are out there who don't want this information out. But I came through. I survived. I've done everything I can to continue to protect the nation as best I can based on my oath and based on what I believe to be best. And I do believe my peers support that or else I wouldn't be here. I would have not survived. Remember, I testified in 2004, 2005, and I'm here we are 2023 and I'm still doing things. So I do. I have had people say, look, there's we don't doubt you at all. It's just that what it would take to to, to prove everything is beyond the scope of our ability to do anything about. I don't get that because I, you know, I fight all the time, but I don't, I don't believe people doubt the facts. Uh, I, the, 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 like I said earlier, the actual guy who did the IG uh, investigation of Able Danger, John Crane actually said, came, he turned, he became a whistleblower and said, yeah, the, the, the report we did on Schaefer, that's not accurate. We set him up. That he actually admitted to that in a sworn statement, and but nobody, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Mm. So that's my issue. But yeah, I do believe most of my peers now do understand that 
something that meets the eye to the to the nine eleven stuff. An able dangerous, but one item uh, amongst many that that have not been resolved. Awesome, great answer. Neil deGrasse Tyson told Joe Rogan during a hijacking that the pilots were trained to obey the orders of any hijackers. Do you know if this was true? I don't. I don't know what the instructions are given to pilots or not pilots. I, I do believe, based on the law enforcement contacts I've had, that that's no longer the case. I think before 9-11, uh, if you recall, um, uh, in the Middle East during the 80s, there were a number of hijackings where basically the pilots were just told to go along. I think that may have been the policy then. I don't think that's a policy now, but I don't know. Okay. Mm. Let's take this one from Jean, uh, Gail. Okay. Well, you got it up there. Great. Uh, okay. Would Lieutenant Colonel Schaefer consider being an expert witness for 9-11 crime scene to courtroom? I saw that. <laughs> this is a film uh, that we're making, taking this evidence that uh, we're going to be showing on your podcast, Tony, yeah. uh, to the, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry has submitted it already for a special grand jury investigation. Now we're making a 15-episode film series on it, and we've uh, interviewed uh, 15 uh, well, 20 to 25 experts altogether. Um, and uh, uh, this is an invitation uh, for you to be uh, on sure. the show. <laughs> well, look, that's why the 9-11 defense guys approached me. So, yeah, I'm sure I'd be happy to participate as best I could based on my only only based on my direct knowledge of what I. Yeah, I yeah. We'll, we'll see where you fit in best, because I have, sure. a, I have a feeling there's a great spot for you. That would be awesome. Yes. All right, everybody, for the next question. Was the Navy JAG that put visa holders off limits to investigation Ron DeSantis? Uh-oh. I don't even understand that question. I've, I believe it is, um, was the Navy JAG, so he's saying that Ron DeSantis? No, oh, I know okay. Governor DeSantis. It wasn't Ron DeSantis, no. Okay. Who is Jamie... Gorelick. Jamie Gorelick. Gorelick. Thank you. Jamie Gorelick. She was yeah, on the, the 9 question's not up, Gail. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's, yeah. Gorelick. Yeah. Gorelick. So Gorelick is an interesting character. Let me say a couple of words about her. Jamie Gorelick was a DOD general counsel. There's a clue. And then uh, she left to go to DOJ. There's another clue. And then after all that happened, they gave her a fancy job over at Fannie Mae making millions of dollars running mortgages. How does a DOD lawyer who goes to DOJ end up uh, running a mortgage company that enriches her by the millions? How does that happen? I mean, can you, do you guys know? How does it, how, how do you get a gig like that? No, that sounds pretty suspicious. <laughs> you play ball. Not apparently. <laughs> And oh, by the way, when we were doing the able da- when I was an able danger whistleblower, she actually called into Kurt Weldon's office. If you all recall, Kurt Weldon, Congressman Weldon, led the congressional investigation into able danger. She actually called his office and actually said, uh, "I didn't do anything wrong." Okay, there you go. I'm sure that's true. She did nothing wrong. I will accept that. Mm. All right, 9-11 also had to include their American Sayonim. Do you know if anything has been written on the 80 Ace elevators? I have no, I have no even context for that question. 9-11 investigator Paul Thompson found out that there were two Ziad Jaraz, Jaraz. So how do we know who is who on that day? 
Were there stolen identities involved in the four explosive attacks? The day of the event, I have no idea. I was not involved in the investigation of the day of the event. So I've, I've given you guys my scope of understanding regarding our targeting of them. Okay. And just filtering a little bit. Lieutenant Colonel Schaefer, you know what the 9-11 truth movement is. With all you know and are you not at liberty to speak about, can you share new D-class things that we are all allowed to know and run with? I've given all the information I can. I mean, and and I've told you where I, I can reveal the top secret stuff within context. So no, I, I you guys can go out and Google everything we've talked about tonight in some form, except for the new stuff regarding the 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 Don uh, Castriano stuff is is has been out there. So, okay, this might be repetitive. I'm going to go ahead and put no. these questions up because I don't want to guess if you if it's already been answered. What specific information pertaining to 9/11 attacks were lost in the destruction of the Able Danger? It's a good question, and I we don't know what's destroyed because we can't get access to it. Hmm. No, I mean uh, we have FOIAed. Uh, Several organizations, most prominent is Judicial Watch. Uh, Tom Fenton and uh, the folks over at Judicial Watch were behind the scenes helping me as a whistleblower when this first started. And they still are very, very much in to helping. And they've got a series of FOIAs, which are still out. And within the last year, SOCOM, Special Operations Command, about I think it was about this time last year, sent a note to Judicial Watch saying, hey, remember that uh, FOIA request enable danger? We're still working on it, by golly. Don't give up. Wow, that's awesome. So we don't know. We don't know what they've kept. We don't know what is still uh, in. Uh, well, we know things exist, but we don't have access to it. So I don't. I can't answer the question because I don't know. Gotcha. All right, Lieutenant Colonel Schaefer, as the counterintelligence guy, can you give the 9-11 Truth Movement street and online activists marching order suggestions to be more effective offensively and defensively? I've tried this before and they don't listen. Stick to (laughs) provable facts. That's it. Don't go off on tangents. Don't go off on theories. Don't go off on space aliens coming down to, to inhabit some alien, some pilot body. Stick to what you, you can prove. Stick to several theories of the crime. R- Richards laid out a very clear path of, of, of things which are factually provable. Other folks have talked about departures from procedure and process which are provable. Uh, I've outlined tonight some of the bureaucratic uh, wars that went on that are provable. We've get, If you want to be effective as a movement, stick to the facts, uh, focus on what is provable, and, and pick three things and stick to those things and hammer them. But nobody listens, so I'm just saying. I've tried it before, and they didn't listen. So, Aww. I would well, listen to you. <laughs> thank you. Well, they did. Yeah, I'll, I'll listen to you. Uh, thank you, Tony. Um, <laughs> an incredible uh, two hours has, has elapsed here, and we are all the more informed and uh, more confident in, in you as a whistleblower mm-hmm. than we were before this. Uh, oh, thank you, uh, Richard. Right. Lightning conversation. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, I've enjoyed the conversation. And look, I told you I'd take all the questions I could. I can't answer them all, but I'm, I'm happy to try. So thank you for having me. It's been a, a good experience. Thank you for, for the conversation. Oh, oh my God. You're welcome. Thank you're, you. You're so very welcome. Thank you. And um, uh, with that, uh, I would like to uh, uh, share this with everybody, and uh, we'll see you next week.